I'm glad I don't own a startup that probably got obsoleted by this. But I think that those people who did are going to have a world of new possibilities ahead of them to build even cooler stuff. And I think it's just going to be an explosion of entrepreneurship with this kind of capability. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode 71 of the Marketing AI Show. I'm your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Caput, and we are coming to you with a special edition sort of this week because we are uh, recording this at 3 p.m. Eastern time on Monday. Usually we do this at, what, 9 a.m. Eastern time on Monday, I think? 9 or 10, yeah. Okay. So OpenAI had their dev day today, their inaugural dev day. We knew it was coming, but as the weekend progressed, it started to become pretty apparent that some significant news was going to come out of this dev day. So Mike and I chat over the weekend, like, all right, let's bump the recording of this to the end of the day Monday so we can get uh, OpenAI's dev day news in. And we are very happy we made that decision because Mike and I both watched the opening keynote from Sam Altman. And that is going to lead off our topics today. <laughs> but first, uh, today's episode is brought to you by Accio, uh, the generative business intelligence platform that lets agencies add AI-powered analytics and predictive modeling to their service offering. That would have been cool back in the day when we were working for my agency. No kidding. Um, <laughs> Accio lets your customers chat with their data, create real-time visual visualizations, and make predictions. Just connect your data, add your logo, and embed an AI analytics service to your site or Slack. Get your free trial at Akio, that's A-K-K-I-O dot com slash AI pod. So yeah, if you're in the agency world, absolutely check that out. We would have been doing that ourselves <laughs> a couple of years ago. All right, Mike, uh, lots to cover, starting with OpenAI Dev Day. So let's dive in. Awesome. So... Just a couple hours before we started recording, OpenAI started, kicked off its first ever Dev Day, which is their conference for developers, where they made some very, very big announcements. And the biggest announcement was around the unveiling of something called GPTs. GPTs are custom versions of ChatGPT that you can actually create yourself, and they can do basically anything you can think of, it sounds like. So... GPTs function like a version of ChatGPT that is tailored for a specific purpose or task. So for example, some of the examples they've shared, you could build a GPT that functions, say, as a creative writing coach or a negotiation assistant, even something that gives you a bunch of information that's helpful when you're doing your laundry on different stains, like clothes to put together. And the cool part is there's absolutely no coding required to build GPTs. You can simply carry on a conversation with ChatGPT to build these. And you can just tell it what you want to see in a given GPT tool, give it instructions to follow, and upload information that your GPT can use to produce outcomes. So Altman actually, Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, demonstrated this functionality right on stage by building a prototype of a GPT he called Startup Mentor. And he did it basically in seconds just by typing in 
uh, build me a GPT that's going to essentially give advice to startup founders. And what's cool is he also uploaded a bunch of his transcripts from, say, past talks he's done on stage about startups that had advice. And this assistant was then able to inform its advice using what Altman himself had said in the past. Now, you can actually keep these GPTs private or actually share them with the wider community. And OpenAI announced that it's rolling out something called the GPT Store later this month, and that'll feature GPTs from verified builders. Now, on top of that, ChatGPT enterprise customers can also deploy their own internal-only GPTs that can safely you know, use their own information for specific purposes or tasks. Now, that was just one of many announcements. Some other notable ones that came out of this event include the launch of GPT-4 Turbo, which is a new and improved version of GPT-4 that's more powerful and less expensive. What's really cool is it also draws on more recent knowledge base. So it actually includes info up until April of 2023. So soon ChatGPT will have a much better updated memory. Uh, it also expands the context window of ChatGPT up to 128,000 tokens. That's a 4x jump from the biggest previous version of GPT-4 and much, much bigger than the typical version we are often using as ChatGPT users. Significantly, it's also bigger than something we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast, Anthropic Claude's 100,000 token context window. And just for and, context, that that is a, about 100,000 words. So when you're yes. 128,000 tokens, it, it's basically like you could, our last book was like 55,000 words. You could basically feed it twice. And <laughs> yeah. A couple other things they launched that are really important in our opinion are the assistance API. And this API makes it easier to build assistive experiences, including those powered by voice. They showed off some really cool voice assistance they were able to build using that API. Uh, OpenAI also said it is launching what it's calling a custom models program. So it says a team of its researchers will start working with a very small group of select enterprises to actually embed with them and train GPT-4 on their own custom domains of expertise. And then one more that jumped out is something they call Copyright Shield, which is a program where OpenAI will start covering customers that are caught on the wrong side of copyright lawsuits. So, Paul, suffice to say, my head is spinning. Um, first up, just let's talk about GPTs. How big a deal are these? Yeah, it, it was a lot. You and I were both feverishly taking notes and trying to kind of process all of this. The GPTs in particular, um, you know, obviously jumped out to both of us. I think it sort of was the big news of the day to the non-developer crowd. Like, I think it's a big deal no matter what. Obviously, this event is for developers, so there was other things like the Assistant API that I saw some developer friends were geeking out about. To us, like it's not as huge of a thing because we're probably not going to go in and use that per se. Um, but the GPTs is for everyone, like literally giving us all the ability to program. So I know you and I were both doing the same thing. Like I'm just, as Sam's still talking, my mind is spinning with things we could build. Mm. And I think the the real key here, as you mentioned, is zero coding ability needed, um, massive disruption to the startup ecosystem. I mean, there's a lot of startup founders today who probably don't have a business model anymore. Like it, it just, it became so easy to build things. This is going to have an impact on existing companies. 
uh, may make a bunch of, you know, tools that have been created in the last six months obsolete, but opens up an entire new world of startups that can emerge out of this. And you don't have to be technical to build them now. So, you know, I, I posted on LinkedIn right after it came out. And my first thought was like, wow, this is just democratizing programming. We've talked about Replit is going this direction. They want to build, you know, make a billion co programmers. Um, this is the idea that a programmer in the future just talks to the machine, just tells it what you want. And so I initially wrote like your imagination is the only limitation. And then I actually went back when I was editing my own post before I published it. And I realized like, oh, wait, I could just go into GPT-4 Turbo and say, I'm an entrepreneur, uh, you know, specialize in marketing. We help clients, you know, with AI literacy and, and driving strategy. Like, what are some tools I could build that could help us help these companies become, you know, use responsible AI and take a human-centered approach to this, whatever. Like, and like, let GPT-4 tell me what GPTs to build. And then I'm like, oh, okay, like those sound amazing. And I said, okay, give me the prompts to build number four. Like, let's, let's go ahead and do that one. So like the idea of like experimentation and ideation around business development and tool development is, it's just different. Like, it's just one of those moments where you're like, okay, that just changes the way you conceive of these ideas and the way you build prototypes. And yeah, I mean, I just think it, you could be anybody, you could be a marketer, a sales rep, a customer service rep, an entrepreneur. You, you basically have the, the ability to now build tools around knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a really, really powerful thing that I think it's going to take us a little while to process what that actually means and the impact it could have. But I know you and I, before we jumped on, we were saying like, we used to run hackathons, like I, I, idea hackathons, basically marketing strategy hackathons, uh, for our clients when Mike and I, you know, worked at an agency and then, um, now we do these applied AI workshops. Where we're identifying use cases for people and, you know, how to pilot AI. And I was like, Man, we should just run one of those for GPTs. Like just mm. get all these ideas flowing of things we could build for our event business, for our media business, for our online education business, for our advisory services. Like we do all of these things now. And so much of it is knowledge-based. And this, to me, my head's just sw like swarming with ideas of things to build. And I was trying to like, bring myself back in because I'm doing a talk tonight at like six o'clock and I went in and changed the deck for that talk. <laughs> I was like, I gotta, I gotta update the presentation for tonight. So yeah, I, I just, I think that they're likely going to be a huge deal and I'm not sure we'll comprehend fully yet how big of a deal for another couple months here until we start seeing the flood of these things emerging. Yeah. Tell me if this resonates for you at all, but Watching it, I was just so immediately lit up and excited because I feel like we have such a background in being consultants and essentially coaches, trainers, educators, and we've created a fair amount of over the years, intellectual property around certain frameworks, hackathons you mentioned. And I just immediately thought like, wow, the limiting factor for us hasn't necessarily been the ideas. It's been, how do we build scalable tools? and frameworks based and, and processes based on those. And this just oh, yeah. made me feel extremely excited because the hard work of arriving at those frameworks was done. It's like, wow, we could bring it to so many more people with these types of tools. Yeah, I won't get into like the specific examples I have on my mind already. <laughs> Somebody will go build them. But I'm with you 100%. Like there's, I, I don't know. I mean, 
I'll, I'll give one example like that anybody could do. But if you do a lot of public speaking or interviews or podcasts, things like that, mm -hmm. th just to build like a GPT based on that knowledge base. So if someone wanted to be able to like have a conversation with you, like they could do it and it's just trained on and has access to all of that knowledge. Um, yeah, it's just, it unlocks knowledge in entirely new ways. It makes that knowledge interactive and it is exciting. Like I'm, again, I'm glad I don't own a startup that probably got obsoleted by this, but I think that those people who did are going to have a world of new possibilities ahead of them to build even cooler stuff. And, um, yeah, it, it's going to be so fascinating. I think it's just gonna be an explosion of entrepreneurship with this kind of capability. Cause it was one of the limiting factors previously is you needed a technical co-founder if you wanted to build a technology company. And, and I, I don't know that that's going to be true anymore. Now, I want to talk about that point you've hinted at a couple of times about the effect on startups, people building AI tools, SaaS solutions out there. I think I, you know, tongue in cheek zoomed you that some of these founders are probably taking their first drink right about now uh, when yeah. some of these announcements came out. It does seem with, despite all the opportunity that we're all excited about that overnight, this might change the game for some of the vendors and third-party uh, tool providers out there. Could you walk us through kind of how you're looking at that startup ecosystem in light of GPTs? Well, I think we saw it as being pretty risky anyway. Like we've talked about for, you know, the last almost 12 months now, this idea that you know, what is the mode of these SaaS companies? If they're just like thin wrappers for OpenAI's technology, like what was stopping OpenAI from just building those features themselves or the models themselves becoming capable of doing these things. And I think this is just the next step. Like mm -hmm. it, it's just so obvious that, um, you know, there's very few knowledge work related things that GPT-4 and its next iteration than the other foundation models aren't going to be able to do especially since this is just a prelude to the AI agent thing. You, you referenced this, but I made a note of, let me see where it was. Um, they said, it's just a step toward AI agents. So we've talked about the idea of interactive agents on, on this podcast many times. Um, we even had a whole, uh, topic dedicated to Andres Karpathy, who went back to open AI after heading up AI at Tesla for five years, um, in, in the spring of this year to work on this exact concept of these agents that can take actions. And so it's pretty apparent to me that OpenAI is further along than they're, they're telling the public. Um, because Sam specifically said, I, I quote, I wrote it down, gradual and iterative deployment so that society can get prepared. Mm -hmm. Like they are moving very quickly toward a, a day where not only we'd be able to build these things, they're going to be able to take actions on your behalf. They're going to start doing the work of knowledge workers in many ways. And so it's, it's very apparent that that's where they're going. And I think this is one of the really important things that came out of today is like to, to future proof your company, to future proof your job, you really have to start looking at the tea leaves here of like what they're telling you they're going to be able to do. The other one that I made note of was Sam said, I think you, you mentioned this was what we launched today is going to look very quaint at the developer conference next year. So when we're back together again next year, this is going to look quaint, which I use a quote from Greg Brockman, the co-founder of OpenAI in my talks all the time, that like Greg says, the most amazing fact about AI 
is that even though it's starting to feel impressive, a year from now, we'll look back fondly on the AI that exists today as quaint and antiquated. So this is obviously like a, a frame of mind within OpenAI. Greg tweeted that in February of this year, a month before they released GPT-4. So when they talk about their current tech, which we all look at, like, oh my gosh, GPTs, they, we can, as a non-developer, I can build something. They're like, oh my God, just wait. Like <laughs> they know they've got something way more powerful than this and that it will be ready to unleash on the world a year from now, six months from now. So I think it's just really important to not just look at what they're announcing, but to look at what they're, this is leading to. This is, it's still very early innings of AI development. Um, and, and so I think this is just a sign of more significant things to come. And so in the startup world, like really trying to think is the thing we're building future proofed or is OpenAI just going to launch a tool in three months that obsoletes our entire idea? Yeah, the AI agents conversation is continually fascinating because it really is a game changer if we end up having tools that can take actions on our behalf. And that really changes the value equation of frankly, a lot of startups, I would say, out there if that comes to pass. Yeah, so I, uh, you and I obviously both follow Ethan Mollick, uh, the Wharton professor, and we've talked about him on the show, but he tweeted right after the event. Um, Overall, I think a lot of AI startups and company initiatives just got folded into the core functions of GPT-4. The system is now faster and cheaper, works better with proprietary data, including using PDFs and documents when appropriate and is more customizable by non-coders. I was giving a talk at MIT early last week, and half the AI startups had ideas that were great and would also clearly be mostly eliminated a week later. Parentheses, I couldn't talk about that, about what I knew about GPTs at the time. This is a tough field to be a founder, a good field for users. That pretty much sums it up. <laughs> so... As we wrap this topic up, did any of the other announcements stand out to you as particularly significant here? Yeah, I mean, I think the GPT-4 Turbo thing's a big deal. The no more, like just from a user experience, that the knowledge base is now from April 2023 instead of September 2021. No more picking your models, which was quite annoying. Like, am I browsing? Am I doing Dolly 3? Am I using advanced data analysis? Am I doing a traditional, like, you don't have to do that anymore. It just kind of knows what you're doing. So I do think just the overall chat GPT user experience jump, and then the 100 million weekly active users is the first time I think we're hearing that number. Mm. The OpenAI has been pretty guarded about the number of users for chat GPT. And the number I kept hearing was still the one from January of 100 million active users that month. And so now we're at 100 million active users per week. Yeah, uh, that's a pretty big number. And just one more argument for essentially why you should be paying for ChatGPT Plus at this point. Yeah, I mean, they got to raise the price <laughs> at some point, right? Yeah, yeah. I've seen people online and I start to agree with them that they'd pay five to 10 times the amount that they're paying now for access uh, to the I think like if I, if, <laughs> if, if I was a, like, if I was being questioned about it, I, I, I think I would probably pay at least a hundred bucks per month per user right now. I, I don't know. Like, but I'm in a small business environment. I'd be willing to do that. I think yeah. so like if it was you and I, and it was like, well, we need access. Like I, I would, I don't think I would think twice about paying a hundred bucks a month for each yeah. of us. Damn. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great value. 
All right. Next up, another huge announcement. Elon Musk has announced his own version of ChatGPT. On Saturday, Musk announced Grok, G-R-O-K. We'll get to that in a second. An AI agent designed to answer any question conversationally. According to an announcement from XAI, which is Musk's AI company, quote, Grok is designed to answer questions with a bit of wit and has a rebellious streak. So please don't use it if you hate humor. A unique and fundamental advantage of Grok is that it has real-time knowledge of the world via the X platform. It will also answer spicy questions that are rejected by most other AI systems. Now, XAI says the model is still in very early beta. It's based right now only on two months of training. Uh, Musk says that Grok basically has real-time access to info on X. And he's indicated that all subscribers to X's premium plus plan, which is $16 a month, will get access to Grok once it's out of early beta. Now, a quick note on the name Grok, which is again spelled G-R-O-K, is a popular term among science fiction fans that was coined in Robert Heinlein's classic sci-fi novel, A Stranger in a Strange Land. Now, in the context of that book, Grok is a Martian word that basically means you have established a profound understanding of something or someone at a really, really deep level. So it's actually often used, you know, in like geek circles or among tech circles to communicate that someone has a comprehensive understanding of a subject, so much so that it borders on the intuitive. So, Paul, let's first talk about why Grok is important. Is this a legitimate competitor to OpenAI, Google, Microsoft, and the other major players in the model space? Um, so I, I, no, not yet. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it's reasonable to say it's competitive. All we have right now is this was announced over the weekend. Um, quite random, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, they've been training it for a very little amount of time. They've only even been pursuing it for a very short amount of time. So there's nothing about it that tells you it's actually competitive other than their own data, which says it's basically at GPT 3.5 level based on their internal evaluations, which no one externally has assessed it yet. So that being said, it does have Twitter data, X data, and it has Elon Musk behind it. So um, we've talked a lot about the, you know, I think, I think the, the final topic we're going to big topic we'll cover today is these foundation models and kind of what separates them. But one of the key things is the proprietary data they have access to. So the fact that they have a pipeline to real-time Twitter data is unique because Elon Musk turned the API off to everyone else. Hmm. So no one else has that data at the moment. Um, you could question whether the Twitter data is really that valuable hmm. given the current state of Twitter. But uh, if we go under the assumption that Twitter's real-time data is extremely valuable as a representation of the pulse of society, which is kind of what they're going for, then yes, it, it, it has the potential to very quickly become a major player in the space. So I guess... If it does become a major player, like, why do we need another foundational model? Like, how is this different or better or needed more than what's already out there? Well, I think for that answer, we may have to go into a little bit of history. So 
we've touched on this before on the on the podcast, but Elon Musk was a, a co-founder and the original investor in OpenAI. So Sam Altman, Elon Musk, Greg Brockman, Ilya Sutskova, who we talked about recently on the podcast, they created OpenAI to be an open alternative to what Google was building. So back when they created OpenAI, they thought that Google was basically going to corner the market on AI and they didn't care about doing it in a responsible and safe way. That was Elon's interpretation. So he teamed up with Sam, put I think a hundred million in, creates OpenAI. 2018, two years later, they have a disagreement about the future of OpenAI. Elon decides to unceremoniously split or was pushed out one or the other. OpenAI launches a for-profit component to the company and goes on their way. And Elon has, since that time, apparently, uh, been very unhappy with Sam and OpenAI and has continuously stated the need to build a competing company, in essence, that he felt that um, he needed to get back in the game. So while he is definitely one of the people kind of trumpeting the dangers of OpenAI, the irony is all the people trumpeting those dangers are themselves building the most powerful AI in the world. So part of this is not actually that we need another foundation model. It's Elon Musk's desire to build a foundational model in his own um, making, of his own making, of the things he finds to be essential to these models. Um, so that's the open AI part. He also obviously has Tesla, which is a major AI company uh, around you know, trying to create autonomous driving. He has Optimus robots that he's trying to build intelligence into. He turned off the API to Twitter months ago so that these AI companies could stop scraping Twitter data. And he created XAI, which is the AI company that is building this model. The other factor is he bought Twitter for $44 billion. Two weeks ago, an internal valuation put Twitter at $19 billion. The fastest way to make Twitter worth more is to make it a true AI company or to make the data of Twitter power a foundation model. So it, th there's lots of factors here, but more than anything, it's Elon Musk's own desire to build an alternative to open AI. Um, the timing of the thing was certainly interesting. I think mm. I noted that to you over the weekend was like, you know, he knew the dev day for open AI was today. So they released this and said, it's a very, very early beta. Almost no one has access to this thing. They've only been training for two months. And as I was cutting my lawn on Sunday, I was like, wait a second. There was no motivation to launch this thing today, other than the fact that the OpenAI dev day <laughs> was right now. And he was just trying to like, I think mess with Sam and OpenAI. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I don't, again, does the world need another foundation model? I don't think so. Does Elon need a foundation model for all of his initiatives? Absolutely. Like he's not going to build Optimus, his robots or his cars on Sam's GPT-4 because he's has a beef with Sam right now. So, you know, Elon's approach is we'll build it. And by, you know, switching Twitter data to becoming the fuel to power a real-time AI engine, now all of a sudden Twitter's potentially worth a lot more money. So it sounds like really time is going to tell how valuable that data from Twitter will be essentially in real time. Yeah. And I mean, obviously people have opinions right now of Twitter the experience overall, you know, whether it's gotten better or worse since Elon took over. Mm. Um, it, it's certainly become more op open, I, I guess, in terms of what it allows on the platform. 
I, I will say that there's a couple of things that jumped out at me at the release of this. One is there's no way they had time for red teaming this thing. Mm-hmm. So like what if you're on Twitter at all these days, you can tell that Elon is much more about let people communicate in whatever way they choose to communicate and the community will determine whether or not that information is viable or valid. So OpenAI red team, meaning like safety, trust and safety uh, testing of GPT-4 for like six months before they released it on the world. This model has only been in development for two. So there's no way they've done any real level of red teaming to ensure the trust and safety is built into this model. So I, I have a lot of concerns around how this model could be used and what it'll do and what it'll say. But my concerns are irrelevant here. They're going to release this thing no matter what. Mm. Um, so I, I mean, I was paying for the premium on Twitter only because I was trying to see what it would do and what you know the functionality would offer and things like that. So the premium plus for 22 bucks a month, which when you compare it to chat GPT for 20 months, seems like you're getting ripped off. I will pay it to see what it is. And I can tell you as a Tesla um, driver for the last five years, I've had a Tesla. They did, they released this thing a few years back where it was like 10 bucks a month for basically live streaming data into your car. And then it had all these other features baked in and it became this enormous value. Like the 10 bucks a month is an absolute steal for what Tesla gives you. It, it is, it's like a lot of value packed into the 10 bucks a month. So there's a part of me that's really curious to see what else they build into this premium plus plan, which I honestly didn't even know was a thing until I saw that the premium plus users would get early access. So I don't know. There's, you can't just look at this as another foundational model. There's too much other things that come along with Elon Musk and his, all of his businesses and all of his personality traits, I, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it that fit into why he's doing this and whether or not it's going to work. Um, I do think it'll be a, a polarizing foundation model. Like I think people who don't like Twitter and the experience there and Elon's way of communicating will hate this tool. Mm. Um, but time will tell, I guess. Yeah. As someone that read and very much enjoyed the Elon Musk biography, I can't say that I feel confident red teaming is something he would like to be doing. I'm guessing they don't have those people in staff, (laughs) if you might guess. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't hire communications people. Like he fired the whole communications team. He fired the, you know, ethics and safety team at Twitter. Like it's just not his, his style. So yeah, I I don't know. (laughs) I, I worry about this one a little bit, to be honest with you. So what's really cool is with these two big announcements, we also had this third topic that really i think ties together everything we're talking about here and basically we just saw this ai watcher drop a really smart analysis of where ai foundation models are going and interestingly it's a take that's been publicly endorsed by elon musk on x so this comes from gavin baker who is the managing partner and cio at atreides management an investment firm And he broke down how he sees the future of foundational models like ChatGPT slash GPT-4 and Grok playing out. So he says, quote, foundation models without significant RLHF reinforcement learning from human feedback and access to high quality proprietary data sets are likely the fastest depreciating assets in human history. 
By that, he seems to be saying that he thinks only four of the foundation models out there are likely to have lasting value and transition to becoming true AI agents over the next few years, both because they have mechanisms for RLHF uh, already and they have access to proprietary data. So the four models that he has identified as kind of the longevity leaders here are ChatGPT slash GPT-4, 5, et cetera, uh, Google's upcoming Gemini model, Grok, and Meta's open source Llama. So for example, he's saying things like ChatGPT have access to Microsoft's proprietary data through their partnership, as well as proprietary data from within the enterprises they work with. Grok has access to all of X's data and Gemini has access to all the proprietary data that Google has been collecting for decades now. Llama, by virtue of being open source, is included in this list because it can then be applied to basically any proprietary data set and tuned on that. So Baker actually makes the claim that if this assessment is correct, ChatGPT basically could go to zero if it didn't have access to Microsoft's data. So after Baker posted all this on X, Elon Musk himself weighed in saying it was, quote, extremely insightful analysis. So, Paul, there's a lot going on here, but basically sounds like he's saying only a handful of these big models out there have both the proprietary data and the mechanisms for uh, human reinforcement feedback to actually create unique, defensible value in the marketplace. What, what's your read on what he's saying here? Yeah, I mean, I think overall it's, it's a really smart take. Um, I don't know about the going to zero. Like it, it, I think there's going to be so much verticalization of these models and so many like specific industry applications and being able to tie them to internal proprietary data. And you're going to have big enterprises that maybe don't want to work with any of those four options to build their model. So they're not going to necessarily. So I, I don't know that it's not like those other companies don't exist, but I do agree that there's going to be a centralization into a few key models. Hmm. Um, the one that I would throw in there that as of like last night at seven o'clock, so Kai-Fu Lee, um, who wrote AI Super, Superpowers that you and I are both big fans of, former president of uh, Google China, and now runs a venture firm in Google, they, his firm announced uh, 01.ai as a, like they said, proud to introduce the world's top open source model, YI-34B, as our first release encouraging LMM projects that they say is more powerful than Llama. Hmm. So, you know, I, the story isn't done yet. There, there are Baidu, there's other players, but I think his basic concept of the the, the companies that have access to the data um, likely have a massive advantage. Like obviously Facebook slash Meta has tons of proprietary data. Um, Tesla X, Grok, like they're going to have all kinds of proprietary data. If he starts merging Tesla data, we didn't even get into Star, um, Starlink. Am I saying the right thing? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Like their satellite data, <laughs> um, SpaceX, like everything. There's just... You can't count Elon Musk out. Like there's just so many proprietary data sources he's going to have and so much motivation. I do think Gemini to me is, you know, has the opportunity to leapfrog like this fall. I, I think whatever Google is doing with Gemini and whenever that does come out, I think it's going to be the most powerful model. It's going to have the most proprietary data, going to have all the learnings of DeepMind baked into it. Um, 
I could see Gemini sort of resetting the conversation mm. uh, for a while, like until we see GPT-5 or whatever. I, I just feel like Google's going to come out with something that's going to take the lead. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree. I thought this analysis was just really interesting. And then that Chamath and Elon both replied to it. Uh, and I saw their replies and, um, you know, I think it's, it's something that's definitely a good thought to go thought process to go through. So it seems like Eve, if he's even directionally correct here, that that has pretty big implications for people using AI models and building AI solutions. Could you maybe unpack a few more of those implications for us? Yeah, I don't know that it changes anything in the real near term, though. Like if you're an enterprise or if you're a business, um, you know, whether you're a marketer or CEO, whatever it is, I don't know that this analysis changes the decisions you're making over the next, you know, three to six to 12 months. Hmm. I think it's a little bit longer term. It's going to take a while for this to play out as to whether or not this ends up being true. Um, but he, you know, I think directionally it's going to be true in the mid to longer term, but I, I, I would have probably more, this is like your CIO and your, you know, leadership are going to start digging more into this concept. And when you start to make, you know, multi-year bets, five to 10 year plays, where you're trying to look out to the future, you're going to want to consider where do we think the market goes, but this is just one opinion. And, and I think to make those kinds of decisions where you're affecting the future of the company mm. with who you're going to build with and partner with, you're going to take in a lot more perspectives than this one, you know, tweet. Um, but, you know, I think again, it's, it's directionally a really important perspective to consider as you're thinking about the long-term strategy for your organization. All right, let's dive into a few rapid fire topics this week. So first up, Microsoft 365 Copilot is now available for select enterprise customers. So remember, Copilot is Microsoft's AI assistant that works across its different apps. This AI product is now priced at $30 per user per month, but The Verge reports that enterprise customers will need to commit to at least 300 users in order to get access. So Microsoft right now says that 600 customers already have early access to Copilot and they're doing things like summarizing and generating docs in Word, analyzing data in Excel, turning notes into plans, and much, much more simply by prompting Copilot to go work across those apps. The Verge also reports that Forrester predicts up to 6.9 million workers will be using Microsoft Copilot in 2024. So, Paul, kind of what's going on here with the pricing, the minimum users? Is this any type of turnoff for enterprise customers with this kind of launch? I don't think so. I mean, we've known it was going to be 30 bucks a month for months. So that that's not new. The 300 minimum user threshold, I think is new. I, I don't believe I had heard that yet. Um, I mean, I think the biggest thing is like the, when I look at the adoption, I think about the impact that this is going to have on enterprises and knowledge work as a whole. There's three factors that come to mind, the education of the user. So do you know that they actually understand what these tools are capable of and the use cases, the onboarding with the technology, and then downstream from that is the overall utilization rates of these different capabilities. So if you unleash like Copilot across all 365 and it's in emails and it's in docs and Excel and PowerPoint, and all these places, and nobody's trained how to use it. Like I have actually talked with people who have access to 365 Copilot 
And one, you know, one friend was like, yeah, you know, I, I use it to write emails sometimes mm. like that. That's the extent of how it was being used. And so I think what's going to happen is, and I don't know what Microsoft's go to market strategy is besides selling the licenses, how you get utilization of the features to where they're truly infused into businesses. That to me is like one of the biggest, if not the biggest question about the impact this has is how is it actually diffused through an organization and how are teams talk the use cases and best practices. Cause we know from firsthand experience talking to these big companies, there's no one internally trained to be the person leading onboarding of 365 copilot. Um, it's a role that isn't really even be imagined by most companies we talk to. Right. So I think it's a huge opportunity for outside advisors, for you, the listeners, like, you know, to get into an AI ops role where you're helping with education and onboarding and training and integration of this kind of technology. Because this is going to be an extended run. I mean, we're talking three to five plus years where this is going to take a while to figure out the impact it has within companies and how to prepare for it. And again, as I'm, our experience has been, those people do not exist within companies yet. I think people are going to need to raise their hand and say, hey, I would love to be involved with the rollout of 365 Copilot. You know, I think these are some of the challenges we're going to run into. I've got deep experience doing this within the company. Like, I'd love to create a role and be a part of this rollout and make sure we get the value out of it. So I think that 2024 will probably see those roles start emerging more. Another kind of existing technology update and from a company we're very familiar with, on November 1st, HubSpot CEO Yamini Rangan announced that the company has acquired Clearbit, which is a leading company that collects B2B data on businesses. And it actually now bills itself on its website as the first AI native data provider. This acquisition will eventually give HubSpot customers access to Clearbit's data on over 20 million companies right within the HubSpot platform. So Paul, obviously we've said many times, we're very familiar with HubSpot from our agency days. The Institute runs on it today. Sounds like this is clearly a data play and therefore in some respects an AI one. So can you unpack what's going on with the Clearbit acquisition from an AI perspective? Yeah, I assume it's largely going to be centered around personalization and prediction. So the more data you have, the cleaner that data, the better you can drive personalization within a CRM like HubSpot and the better predictions you can make around churn, conver you know, conversion rates, things like that, quality of leads. Um, you know, and we can say from personal experience, like HubSpot Insights is, is offered within HubSpot. I don't know where the data necessarily comes from. But last time I looked, there was like, I don't know, a couple dozen data points that are enriched with some HubSpot Insights data. Our, our experience has generally been, it's not very reliable. Like it's, it's actually pretty crappy data um, for the key things we look at it to the point where we can't even really use it to make any kind of predictions. Um, and we don't rely on it for personalization. So I think this kind of play where you get more reliable data, more real-time data infused in could be a really valuable play for a CRM company that starts to look at how do we drive smarter marketing, smarter sales, smarter customer service, smarter operations, data is going to be core to all that. So it seems like a smart move. We've never used Clearbit ourselves. I can't speak specifically to Clearbit, um, but conceptually it makes a lot of sense why they would do this. And I'm excited to see it. So in another news item, Jan LeCun, who is widely seen as one of the godfathers of modern AI, actually just put some AI leaders on blast over what he calls, quote, corporate lobbying 
with the U.S. government in order to create regulatory capture by influencing AI regulations. Now, Lacoon mentioned people specifically like Sam Altman of OpenAI, Demis Hassabis of Google DeepMind, and Dario Amodai of Anthropic. He claims basically they're attempting to make it so that a small number of companies functionally control the development of AI and that they're doing that by essentially lobbying the U.S. government to influence AI regulations. Lacoon has oftentimes and again said that he thinks AI doomsday scenarios, you know, this existential risk of AI running amok and out of control is just totally overblown. And that the real near-term risk is that the future of AI ends up being dominated by a handful of closed for-profit companies. So, Paul, Lacoon is one of a, a huge person in artificial intelligence. Like, what is going on here with him coming out against some of these other companies, especially given the fact that he works, you know, at Meta? It's the open versus closed sourced, like, this this is what this is all about. So there are there are definitely people in the camp that think open source is key to everything. We touched on this a little bit with the executive order conversation last week in our podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean the big concern with regulatory capture is you have three, four, five companies who are all uh, stand to benefit the most from this. The big tech persona, as we talked about last week. Um, who, you know, kind of want the regulation because it's going to make it a lot harder for competition to show up. Uh, In particular, it may make it extremely difficult on open source companies and models. So Jan is a a major proponent that like he, so, so the history with Jan is when he agreed to go and run the research lab at Facebook, when Zuckerberg recruited him, it was under the stipulation that Zuckerberg commit to keeping everything they did open. Mm -hmm. So all of their research, all of the, everything they built, because in Jan's opinion, that was what was, would attract the best AI researchers. They don't want their work hidden behind, you know, closed models and, and no one being able to talk about the work they were doing. So to Zuckerberg's credit, which I don't often give, um, he has stayed true largely to his commitment to Lacoon through the years, and they have continued to push out open source research and models. Now, I, I, I kind of like, I struggle with this one a lot because I see a lot of the justified fear in opening these models up. Um, and so I wouldn't say like, I can confidently steel man the open source side of this. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I think I actually tend to lean toward there needs to be a point where there, we don't just open source everything. Like it is going to get very dangerous, but Jan is much smarter than me about this stuff. And he has a very specific point of view. But like we talked about on the executive order one last week, you have to consider the perspective of the people championing the different points of view. So I would always listen to Jan's point of view. I read everything Jan writes. I follow any conversation he does because there's something to be learned from him um, always. And I think he's very even keel about this. Like I, I think he's he's very systematic in why he feels this way. Mm-hmm. And he's very good at diffusing the arguments for the opposite you know, direction. Um, but I just, it, it basically comes down to open source versus closed. And there are a lot of people who really think open source is critical to the future safety of AI. And there's a lot of people who think it is the, the largest existential risk to our future is allowing these open models out into the world. So as a follow-on to that, 
Lacoon actually also joined people like VC firm Andreessen Horowitz and dozens of other leading AI voices in submitting a letter recently to the Biden administration. And it basically cautioned that parts of the executive order on AI that came out last week could actually harm open source development. And essentially, this letter argues that some of the reporting and safety requirements that the executive order outlines for top foundation models could also end up sweeping in small open source models that don't really pose the same types of threats or security risks. And if that happens, it would make it much harder or outright impossible for open source models to develop freely. So we've talked a bit about this tension between the few powerful foundation models and the open source ones. Is this just another signal that some of the bigger players might be going for regulatory capture? Or is this just a misguided part of the executive order in your opinion? Do you think they knew about this as they're writing it? No, I think this is them realizing there is a great risk here that if the government decides to over-regulate, that it could have some pretty serious uh, near-term impact on the open source community and, and movement and that they need to take action real fast and they need to get vocal. And I think they probably feel like the big tech regulatory capture group um, has probably been more successful at this point lobbying the government and they need to step up their game to have their voice heard and hopefully influence this before it gets too far in their opinion. All right. For our last topic this week, kind of a, a little bit of an unnerving one, unfortunately. Um, you know, a user on X named Sinead Bovo, and I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. She is an AI educator and journalist, and she posted uh, an incredible and horrible story about an AI company that just straight up trained a chatbot to mimic her used her data without her consent. You know, she's got public data out there of commentary, videos, education. And then it actually notified her that it was up and running. And guess what? It will soon include a voice clone. So she posted a video about this, um, obviously is quite upset, has sent a cease and desist last week, she said, and the company has since taken it down. But she notes that this isn't a scalable, practical solution. And also you know, what happens if they don't take it down? So, Paul, I'm curious, like, we've kind of talked about the fact this is going to increasingly happen, you know, with politicians and personalities, but this is happening to kind of, you know, a professional who has an online presence. Um, obviously, it's someone who's in the eye of the public, but not exactly, you know, a Kardashian out here. So, isn't something like this illegal? Like what protections exist against this happening to your average person? Assume it's illegal, but you got to have the, you know, the resources to pursue it from a legal perspective, which usually costs money and attorney bills. Um, we had this happen obviously earlier in the year. We talked about music where people are stealing, you know, musicians, you know, voices and creating lyrics and you know, releasing songs under their name. Drake, I think comes to mind as one. So you have this like weird camp, like people are going to do this all the time. You're going to have the people who are like, oh, that's cool. Like I, I think the all in guys, didn't somebody do this to their podcast yes, or they, they created synthetic yeah. versions of them and like, yeah. and they played it up like, oh, that's great. Like whatever. <laughs> and right. they didn't, as far as I know, they didn't tell them to cease and desist. They like just kind of rolled with it. Um, so I think there's, there's some, something to keep in mind. One, um, not all 
startup founders are ethical people. Like they may steal stuff just to steal stuff and make money. The other ones are, I was, I've always found humorous. They'll steal your stuff and then they don't know that it's illegal and they'll tell you they stole it and like think that you're going to be happy they stole your stuff. <laughs> and so th that's the group I've just never comprehended. They do it. Uh, this has happened to me countless times in my, you know, 20 plus years in business where someone will just blatantly steal something and then they'll just reach out to me and say, Hey, I stole your thing. Like, check it out. Here's the link. And it's like, you're kidding, right? So, um, it happens all the time. Sometimes they think they're doing you a favor. Sometimes they know they're stealing your stuff. Mm. So all I would say is for personal branding purposes, for corporate branding purposes, not only, you know, have your IP attorney, you know, on call on speed dial, um, but monitor your brand, like mm. have alerts set up to know if course you created, a book you wrote, a PDF you released under a paid thing, like track that stuff because people steal intellectual property all the time. AI is just going to make it easier and it's going to make it multimodal. So instead of just <laughs> text and links and stuff, now they can steal your likeness and your voice and everything. And it's, it's going to be prevalent. Um, so yeah, I think something like this is just a reminder that we have entered a new age where anybody can steal and recreate anything and it's going to be really easy to do and fast. Someone's going to create the GPT like knockoff where you can build these agents to do bad things. And like it, it it's a whole, I hate I didn't do the shows like this, but welcome to the age of generative AI when we can all create anything we can imagine. It's going to be awesome. And then sometimes it's not. Well, I'm going to pivot and end the show on a more positive note because I do want to give a shout out to the fact that every week on this podcast, we cover the most important stories in AI and hopefully make it easier for you to follow what's going on and unpack why it matters. But we have limited time on the podcast. And as you might have noticed, a ton happens every hour of the day in AI. So we have dozens of stories we usually don't get to. So things we can't get to on the podcast are also included in Marketing AI Institute's newsletter that goes out every single week. So you won't just get a recap of what we discussed today. In our newsletter every week, you will get new news stories that you need to follow. It's an incredible weekly digest that can get you up to speed very, very quickly and cut through all the noise out there. So if you haven't checked it out yet, I would encourage you to go to marketingaiinstitute.com forward slash newsletter. So Paul, with that, uh, I appreciate you breaking everything down. I'm glad we were able to cover uh, some of the breaking news happening this morning, this afternoon as well. Yeah, we're so well delaying this. So hopefully you all, you know, it helped you all kind of unpack all this. It was a lot. Um, like Mike and I said, we're still kind of processing the GPT thing ourselves. So uh, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be fun. It's uh, never going to be boring moving forward. So Mike, thank you as always for curating everything and leading the conversation. And we appreciate all of you listening each week um, or watching if you're watching on YouTube, like my dad, hey dad, Give him a shout out to my dad who watches this every week. Uh, and we'll talk to y'all next week. Thanks for listening to the Marketing AI Show. 
If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.